If you're a physician who wants more autonomy in how you practice or fulfillment in your life, you're in the right place. This is the Change Physician Podcast, where our guests reveal how you can learn the mindsets, skills, and strategies to create the life you want without selling out your morals or values. But before we begin, I want to remind you of the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you at thechangephysician.com. The Change Physician, episode 123. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Change Physician podcast. This is your host, Dr. Kevin Kukara, with my Amazeballs co-host, Dr. Melissa Katie, and our Amazeballs guest, Dr. Lee <laughs> Dahlin. Um, you may not know him just by his face, but uh, Dr. Dahlin is the physician on fire with a very widely popular, popular uh, physician website where many of us have gone and read his musings and seen his journey and followed with him peripherally over the years. So it's very exciting to have you come on and give us a little update of what your recent adventures have been like, as well as to give the listeners a little bit of background about what your journey was with both medicine and how you kind of moved into this early retirement lifestyle. So Leif, great to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for that balls introduction. <laughs> that, that's I my favorite new word. I love balls. Yeah, had that uh, as part of intro before. So uh, happy to be here and uh, joining uh, both you and Dr. Katie today. Thank you. So can you little, tell us a little bit of background? I mean, a lot of people are going to know who you are in the physician community, but for those who aren't, can you give a little bit about your medical background, your practice experiences, and then kind of transition to where you are now? Uh, sure. I'll try to be relatively brief, but I uh, grew up in Minnesota, went to undergrad and medical school at the University of Minnesota and matched into a residency program at the University of Florida. I was a gator sedator, as they say, for a few <laughs> years. And then uh, when I graduated, I wasn't quite sure what kind of practice I wanted. And my fiance, now wife, was going to be matching into uh, an internship for dietetics, and that would happen a year after I graduated. And so I didn't want to take a permanent job because, well, my wife might have to go across country for her internship a year later. So I worked locums exclusively for my first two years out of training and then settled into a permanent job just about everywhere I worked as a locum, which I think it was five different states in those first two years. Um, they were looking for someone long-term and, and offered me a job and, uh, I worked one place close to my uh, wife's family in Northern Michigan, and we decided to go ahead and, and take them up on, on that offer for a permanent job. I did air quotes, if you're listening, um, you know, <laughs> without the, the, the video, but uh, that permanent job lasted uh, three and a half to four years. The hospital ended up filing for bankruptcy and uh, closed down for a while. I was gone before the, the very last day, but uh, it didn't work out so well. Um, so, you know, my career didn't go quite as planned, but I decided to take a, a job a little further west in South Dakota, worked there a couple years, and my wife wanted to be closer to family. So we moved to Minnesota, which is where I'm from. Uh, and that was my final of three, uh, you know, long-term uh, jobs, uh, permanent jobs, so to speak. Uh, but altogether, the career lasted about 13 years. Um, and somewhere uh, during that last job, even though it was my favorite and, and best job, uh, I would say easily, um, I decided that I was going to be ready to hang it up, you know, sometime in my 40s. And it ended up, I was 43. And this was now two years ago that I walked out of the call room in the OR for the last time. So to kind of clarify that a little bit, 
what was your, your financial sort of knowledge before you went into medicine and then when you were into internship? Because there's sort of, I mean, it's always kind of interesting to me to hear where people kind of hear like, oh, you don't have to work 50 years or you don't have to do this. There's, that idea has to come from somewhere as well as there has to be that degree of financial knowledge. And some people learned it in their families. A lot of people did not learn it in their families since it's not, um, oddly enough, not taught in schools, it seems. Mm -hmm. So where did you start learning about the finances? And then where did that picture of, hey, I can actually do this. Maybe I'm going to retire in my 40s as compared to 65. Yeah, that's a great question. Early on, I, you know, I think my parents did a good job of teaching me to be relatively frugal. My dad was a dentist, uh, and so was his dad. So they made pretty good money. And, uh, but they didn't spend like you might expect a dentist um, to spend. And, and part of that, I think, is growing up in a small town in, in the Midwest where maybe flashy lifestyles are, are frowned upon, if anything, you know, not really, um, you know, looked up to. And, and then, you know, I didn't learn a lot about investing. But when I was a medical student, I, uh, I know I talked to my dad about, well, I'm gonna be making some money someday. And, you know, thinking about different ways I could invest. And he gave me a book called The Only Investment Guide You'll Ever Need by Andrew Tobias. And it was a just a kind of a basic primer. These are different investments that are available. And he also preached relative frugality. And reading that kind of set me on the path towards not doing anything too dumb with my money. I, <laughs> uh, I know he, I think he probably talked about not doing life insurance, just buying mutual funds. And, and uh, so, you know, I started out my career having some basic knowledge from that one book. And it wasn't until about halfway through that 13 year career that I, I realized that we'd been saving, you know, pretty well, just buying mutual funds, like the book said to do. And uh, I realized we were approaching that seven figure mark. And that's when I really started kind of digging into our finances and figuring out what I had and which account and if that asset allocation made sense, which in some ways it did. In a lot of ways, it, it didn't. It was a little bit random. I had some um, target date funds. I had some kind of actively managed funds of funds that looked like they gave a lot of diversity, but I could have done better with a lot lower fees having just bought like a total stock market index fund. Um, but I figured out like, okay, I started reading Bogleheads. I discovered uh, the white coat investor, this guy called Mr. Money Mustache, who talked more about mm -hmm. the financial independence and retire early side of things um, and kind of put it all together. This was now um, approaching maybe 10, 10 years ago. Um, but it was five or six years ago that I realized what it took to actually be financially independent which means having at least 25 times what you spend in a typical year or what you anticipate spending in retirement uh, saved up and invested or cash flow that meets or exceeds your typical spending or some combination thereof. Um, and once I realized I had that, I was kind of blown away. I was in my late thirties, I was about 39, just uh, nine to 10 years out of residency. And I had no real ambition or intention of trying to retire early. I did think at one point, well, you know, I'll be an empty nester. We have two kids, two boys now, 10 and 12 years old. And I thought, well, you know, maybe when they're out of the house, I'll be in my early to mid fifties. Maybe we'll do locums again, maybe wind down my career the way I started. Um, but I never really envisioned retiring in my forties until I realized it was 
totally possible and that we would be in, in really good financial shape to do so, uh, living the lifestyle that we were already living. Hmm. Wow. And so that, um, you got interested and then you started your blog about five or six years ago, I yeah. think is when Physician on Fire came out. Exactly. And then, because uh, it's interesting, if you look at your old blog post, you're talking about, oh, I'm thinking about doing this and, and I'm, I'm uh, could you, when did you finally decide, like the, the decision, because there's some angst in there and you, even, mm-hmm. you kind of mentioned here where you're like, you realize, hey, I could do it, but then to actually take that step um, I think it's scarier than a lot of people would anticipate if they're not close to that step yet. Yes. The blog really helped me kind of work through the psychological side of that. And just, you know, when you write tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words about early retirement and investing and, and all of these things, and then, then it really kind of solidifies, okay, what do I want the rest of life to look like? Would this be a viable option for me? But even before starting the website, I certainly talked a lot with my wife about what we wanted our lives to look like and how it would be different if I didn't have a job. She had stayed home to raise our children. uh, And so we knew if I wasn't working or tied down to a particular hospital or a call schedule, uh, that we would have the freedom to, say, travel for months at a time, which is something we started doing early on (laughs) and we haven't been able to do now uh, like we wanted. But you know, we, uh, we roll with the punches. We're able to be flexible like that. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it was, um, I would say a decision between the two of us and the timing part of it was financial. I wanted a really good cushion. I wasn't satisfied with, you know, getting that 25 times spending and saying, okay, I'm done. Right. So I, I ended up working another four to five years after we figured out we could probably afford to retire. And, um, and the timing was based more than anything on, on the age of our kids and where they were in schooling. And, and we figured, well, if we leave after they've had a few years of, uh, you know, public school education and travel for a few years, maybe three or four years, then we could be back settled down somewhere when my older son is of high school age. And then he would have the option to have a more traditional high school experience, which I think, um, I think he would probably want, and I would want for him. Uh, so that was kind of the impetus once they were, uh, I guess they would have been eight and 10 years old. That's when I pulled the trigger. Hmm. You know, I, I was noticed. I love how you <clears throat> on your blog, it just talks about how your whole purpose, just enlighten, educate and entertain. And, you know, I, just the fact that you got a book from, you know, to be educated by your own father with that book. I mean, most people don't even get that kind of yeah. guidance. Yeah. Um, for those that haven't gone to your website and, and haven't really seen all the resources now at this point in your life, what are, what's some of the educational other than going to your website and following you and getting your blogs and newsletters? Yeah. Um, what would be your suggestion for like, if you have children or for yourself as an adult that never got the education, what are your kind of go-to or at least a you know, broad understanding of all the ways that you can invest and be wise with your money? Sure. Uh, I think, you know, number one is just minding the gap between what you earn and what you spend. And uh, the larger that is, the more money you'll have to invest and the more rapidly you'll approach financial independence. Uh, as far as investing specifically, uh, I like to keep things pretty simple. Um, now that we're what I would say is beyond financially independent. I've 
taken a little more risk, make, made some investments that I wouldn't necessarily make if I uh, didn't feel like I had a surplus, right? But mm -hmm. like to get to financial independence, all I did was invest in the stock market, a little bit in bonds, maybe 10%. And you can do that with uh, as few as three funds. And I, I kind of champion the Bogleheads, and, and that's a name based on uh, John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, uh, his followers talk about a three fund portfolio, total stock market, which is US domestic stocks, and it holds virtually every publicly traded stock that you can buy. Total international stock, which is uh, another fund that will hold everything outside of the US that's publicly traded, and then a bond fund that holds something like 8,000 different bonds of various duration and public uh, and uh, corporate bond bonds. And so with those three funds, you can have amazing diversification, super low fees, and you're going to get uh, solid market returns. Uh, you're, you're just not going to lose much um, to middle managers and money managers. And everybody wants to take a little cut and, you know, a quarter percent here, a half percent there, one percent there doesn't sound like much. But when they're taking it out of your, re out of your return, it, it really makes a big difference over the long run. And so I like to keep things simple. Uh, like I said, as few as three funds can give you a, a great diversification. And when you try to beat the stock market, most people, even the professionals that are paid a lot to try to do so, usually fail. So I like to uh, be content with market returns. Uh, and they certainly were good to me over my investing career when I was working from 2006, when I finished residency, uh, to 2019, when I retired from medicine. Um, there was, as you might recall, a uh, pretty substantial downturn in the market of uh, about 50% for U.S. stocks in uh, the bottom out uh, in March of 2009. And that turned out to be a really good thing for me because I was continuing to invest as prices got lower and lower and lower and bottomed out and then started to rise again. I got uh, in at some very low valuations and, you know, the, the investments I made in index funds back in early 2009, I think they've gone up five X or six X by now, mm. you know, because they had dropped by half. <laughs> so maybe they're two to three times what they were uh, in 2007, but uh, maybe five or six times what they were in 2009. So uh, having a bear market, having a down market is not such a bad thing, especially if you are early in your career and don't have a lot uh, already invested. Sure, sure. Kevin, uh, did you have another question? Because I have another one if you're not. No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead. I, okay, one... have, I can always have a question, but okay. you know. <laughs> Well, I'm just curious because something coming out of being employed uh, last year, I decided to roll mine over into my own self-directed account through an LLC of my own, for my own business purposes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious. Um, so a lot of times you hear of people that are just used to having their employer and they just kind of pick the things they want if they have choices in that. Um, but from a self-directed standpoint, you still feel strongly about uh, stock market investments, or do you feel like, you know, investing in real estate and other things is um, wise too? So you just did what I just did. I, I took my Roth IRA actually, and I'm mm -hmm. taking a portion of that and I'll have a self-directed Roth IRA. And by self-directed, some people mistake that to mean that, oh, they make the choices of what mutual funds or stocks to buy. Um, but self-directed is a specific kind of designation that means you can put uh, different alternative investments in them, like real estate, as you mentioned, uh, even cryptocurrency, precious metals, uh, all, all, all kinds of things that you wouldn't normally be able to buy in a standard 401k IRA, et cetera. Um, 
I, again, this is something a little more recent, but I have been branching out into some real estate funds and crowdfunded uh, investments. And it, it adds a layer of diversification. Real estate doesn't necessarily move step-in-step uh, step with the stock market. Uh, they can be correlated like they were in the Great Recession, but oftentimes they're not, not so correlated. Uh, and you can benefit from some of the uh, you know, uh, tax benefits of real estate investing. And uh, so I've been slowly ramping up an allocation to real estate, to private real estate. And I'm at about 10% now. And I think I might build that up to 20% um, as we go on. But I still do have you know, more than 25x just invested in a kind of a 90-10 stock to bond portfolio. Interesting. Go ahead, Kevin. I don't want to steal all your, your thunder there. No, no, no thunder. It, it was just, <laughs> it, I it was interested in the, um, you know, 2008, 2009, because it was a very interesting kind of moment in time. And it's a different mindset when people look at a crash or, or a significant loss in the market. And I love how you kind of pointed out, though, if you're early in your career, that is actually a very good thing. It's bad for the people who may be starting retirement, but for yeah. those of us who went through it and you consistently invested, it, it, it's just a huge opportunity. And um, mm -hmm. I had a physician who I had a, I had rotated with, actually not rotated with, I had observed him prior to medical school and I'll never forget it was 1987. And he said they were watching the crash in 1987 and he was talking to his wife at the time and, and they were all excited about it. Hmm. And that kind of just lodges in your head is, oh, that's yeah. a very different wow. perspective to see mm -hmm. how you look about this stuff. But I, I love that. And, and I, I love that focus on really just making sure that you are in the market and looking at it a long time rather than a short-term perspective. What do you think from from your sort of readership, because you, you know, you're focusing very much on physicians and we know there are people who are not, but physicians as a whole, a lot of us don't have a really good financial aptitude. If you, you know, what do you think the biggest money mistakes are made for a new attending or someone who's new to the field or, or just someone who, who is now making the income of a physician and is now launched into the world with all the wolves that are present mm -hmm. there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think probably the number one thing is that lifestyle, lifestyle uh, inflation or lifestyle explosion where, you know, you have all this delayed gratification and, you know, instead of doing one big thing like a really nice trip or buying a nice car, you get all the nice things and you might be in a higher cost of living area. So the house is 1.2 million. Uh, you might have a practice buy-in of several hundred thousand dollars. Uh, you get, you know, a couple of car payments and suddenly you're like 1.5 million in debt when you add on the student loan debt and everything else. And that is just a huge hole to dig out from, even if interest rates are, are relatively low on most or all of that debt, that's just not a great place to start. Uh, you know, for me working locums was really nice because all of my expenses were paid for. I mean, the hotel, the rental car, uh, even a per diem for food sometimes. So we had like zero <laughs> expenses for the most part. Uh, when I started out. So I was able to save, you know, darn near everything I made. We did take um, some pretty cool vacations, but other than that, we, we didn't have the everything lifestyle explosion. And so I think just, you know, the white coat investor who I'm sure you're familiar with as well. Uh, he, he's famous for telling people to live like a resident for three to five years. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, you lived on what, now it's about 60,000 a year. It was 40,000 when I trained, you know, for a while. And, and uh, you know, 
life wasn't so bad. If it was bad, it was probably because you were working 80 hour plus weeks all the time, not because you didn't have you know enough money to, to get by and, and do some fun things from time to time. Um, and then on the investing side, again, I think uh, not trying to hit home runs, you know, it, all the headlines are about the uh, people that invested in this SPAC or that cryptocurrency or, or, you know, the latest meme stock, right. GameStop and whatever. And, and that, that uh, requires luck and getting in and out at the right time. And it makes for a good story, a good headline, but it's not the common experience. And so, you know, aiming for, uh, you know, singles and doubles consistently, like I said, with index funds is, is a more sure path to growing wealth. Um, you know, and if you can get five, eight, 10, 12% a year, and it's actually been better than that for most of my, uh, investing lifetime, you're going to do just fine if you're diligent and, and save, you know, for us, it was about 10 years and we were financially independent. So, uh, might be 15, 20, 25, depending on, uh, exactly what kind of lifestyle you want to live and, and where you live is extremely important. And I think uh, a lot of people maybe don't put as much uh, emphasis on that. Now, there are a lot of reasons to choose where you live. Uh, but the fact is you can make more money typically in places that are lower cost of living. And so if, uh, you know, if you don't have a strong need to be, um, say, uh, on the coast or in you know, some of the major cities in the U.S., uh, you can do pretty darn well for yourself in uh, small to medium-sized cities in in places that uh, some people call flyover country, but I call home and always have. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Austin, Texas, where I live, um, the what you make there versus like in Wisconsin is uh, significantly different. Yeah. Although <laughs> Texas is pretty darn good. I, bet, I know you know, the, the payer mix can be really good. And of course you're, uh, you're not paying any state, uh, income tax. And, and so I, I know there are definitely places in Texas where you can do quite well too. Um, I'm thinking more of like, you know, New York city, Bay area, San Diego, LA, et cetera. That's where it's like your mortgage payment can be half of your paycheck. That makes it difficult to get ahead quickly. Yeah. 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 We have a lot of Californians moving to Austin. Um, even though it's expensive here versus Dallas or Houston, it's still a lot cheaper than California. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. And your real estate's probably appreciated a whole lot if you yes. uh, have been there for more than a few years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin, uh, can I ask a question or you got another one to follow? You always ask a question, Melissa. <laughs> well, I was wondering because the thing we've talked about with our listeners sometimes is that um, when you retire, Sometimes you're not prepared on the non-financial side of, of really having some structure or things you enjoy or hobbies and whatnot. So what is it that you do that you love and are really, um, you know, there's probably a great amount of gratitude, I assume, spending time with your own family. But yeah. what are the things that you fill your time with if you're not doing, you know, medical work? Yeah. So, yeah, it really varies a lot. Um, <laughs> I mentioned that we wanted to travel and we did spend a couple months uh, in a few different cities in Mexico um, right after I finished and then a couple more months in Spain. Um, but by the time we were leaving Madrid, the uh, coronavirus had had been there and was, uh, you know, the numbers were going from a few a day to a few dozen a day and then maybe a hundred and it was time to leave. Mm -hmm. um, we had big plans to cruise to uh, Shanghai, China last fall and hop around Australia, New Zealand, 
Thailand, Vietnam, wherever it was pretty open-ended and then cruise back like five or six months later. So we love to travel. We didn't get to take that trip. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully we'll be able to do something like that um, in the next two years before my older son will be uh, in ninth grade, but we'll see. Um, So we're home and home has moved. We moved to Northern Michigan, which is where my wife's uh, uh, from. And we've got a lot of family around here and we bought a little place. We have had a little cabin on a lake for a number of years. And when we moved here, we had these two places. We kind of went back and forth between. And ultimate goal is to have a single long-term home on the lake. And they're difficult to come by. As you know, the real estate market has been insane. And uh, we were finally able to get a place this spring. So I sold the other two places by owner. So that took some time and effort. Although doesn't take much effort when everybody wants to throw money at you right for any house that you would sell um and then moving into a house takes effort and and now we're actually so what we found was um a home across the street from the lake but it's got one acre on the lake and we will be building there starting next spring i believe so planning for that um but our weekends are filled with um family time we're making uh, new friends in town you know this weekend we went to a little kind of hidden beach on lake huron it looks like a tropical caribbean scene except the palm trees are pine trees but otherwise you wouldn't know <laughs> and the water is a little colder and not nearly as salty and it's shark free but it's uh, you know, it's a fun little thing. And the day before that, we took our boat out on the inland lake that we live on and went down to the sandbar and saw some friends down there and you know, had a beer in the afternoon. Um, like watching movies, we uh, my wife and I just finished uh, Stranger Things season three. We watched all three seasons over the last uh, um, couple months, but um, tried to limit our screen time and our kids' screen time. Uh, to to not a whole lot anyway i can always find something to do i've never been bored uh in my adult life and i can't imagine that's going to change sure yeah Yeah. that's great that's great so i got a a quick question then you're you're two years into this is there looking back would you tell young leaf just Mm -hmm. before he made that pull is there anything that you wish you had known then that you know now that would have changed either decision or changed time frame or or something well with the benefit of hindsight you know i i don't think it would change anything but I, covid certainly altered you know these yeah. first couple of years um but i don't know that i would have done anything differently um i did like you know that happened about six months into my you know retirement from anesthesia and I contacted my old chief and said, Hey, if you need help, I still have all my credentials, my license. I could jump in, you know, if someone is out for COVID or if you're super busy and it turned out they were super not busy, right. Elective surgeries were on hold and they didn't have much to do, you know, so they didn't need me. Uh, eventually I ended up uh, volunteering with the local health department and, and when my wife and I both were at all, a bunch of their, clinics all around like northeastern Michigan we just did all these free clinics to vaccinate uh, people starting with the elderly and and working on down until everybody had had a chance to get a vaccine if they wanted it and of course at the end there were not nearly as many people wanting it as we had vaccine which is really really sad to see but it was very uh, rewarding to uh, be able to step in and and vaccinate all these people that were so grateful uh, especially in those first couple months when it became available to, to new age groups you know every couple of weeks um, that was pretty cool. 
But like, what would I tell younger Leaf? Like two years ago, not much different. Nothing would change. I sometimes wonder if I had actually known that financial independence was this thing and that early retirement was an option. I don't know if I would have wanted to know that when I started my career, because <laughs> that's like this thing that's 10, 12 years, 15 years away. And I don't want to be thinking about that when I should be just focusing on, you know, I'm starting a family, I'm getting into my career, you know, um, and that's where my focus was not on, oh, I'm at 150,000 now, oh, just a few more months, we'll hit 200, you know, that that's got to be kind of tough. It's a long slog if you're taking it like, you know, one month, one year at a time. I feel pretty fortunate actually to have discovered this whole concept um, after I had already saved that amount of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Very cool. Um, okay. I'm just gonna have to ask this question because yeah. I cannot find the blog that maybe, maybe it's not been written yet, but mm. there, there was something I read about um, being that I'm anesthesia. It said there's some yeah. drawbacks. You love the job, but there was some drawbacks. I was just curious what that was. Uh, the call schedule. I, my first job, I was Q3 and I didn't have the uh, next day off. Um, usually had to work. And so that was brutal. Mm. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I didn't hate the job. I, I liked most aspects of it and I wasn't really burnt out. Like there were things that I found to be tedious. And, but I, and I know like having read about the causes of physician burnout and, and having seen others burn out that a lack of autonomy is a big contributor. And I think by definition, an anesthesiologist just doesn't have that much autonomy, right? You don't choose your patients. You don't choose usually the surgeons you work with. You don't choose your schedule. You don't decide when a woman wants to have her epidural. Uh, you are just at everyone's beck and call, the surgeons, the patients, the nurses, and the pager, right? And so you, you have very little autonomy other than deciding, you know, what uh, type of anesthetic to give and, you know, what sort of induction and how you're going to manage the airway. But uh, in terms of autonomy, that's just not built into our specialty, is it? No. Yeah. But I, I you know, I knew that going in. I, I thought anesthesia was a great choice for me. Um, but I'll be honest, like at three or four o'clock, five o'clock, if I heard that the last case of the day was, was canceled, um, that, that didn't uh, hurt my feelings. You know, typically. <laughs> I was like, Oh, so I, I can go home now instead of in two or more hours. All right. Well, let's, let's do that then. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was just curious. Cause you know, there's always those things about, you know, you're going to miss some things, but there's some things you definitely won't. Um, so Q3 call sounds like a pretty good reason. Yeah. But that was just my first job. I was Q5, um, for my last job, which was five to six years. And, and it was home call, although we were typically working, you know, it, it, in my situation, it was one anesthesiologist uh, running three to four rooms in the hospital and, and doing the epidurals and C-sections and anything else. So uh, you're typically working from 6am till sometime at night, and maybe often going back in for something at some point. So it was pretty busy call, even though it was home call. Well, I only wanted to ask that just because people think about retiring. So when I get away from the burnout situation and, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, these are just things that people have that they don't like or they like, and, and it leads them in that direction. But hopefully, you know, from what it sounds like, you just saw that there, this was an option and, and this is something that was reasonable to you and you still enjoyed what you did. So that I, I just think that's, I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. I, uh, 
I just, I, I liked, I liked the people I worked with and, uh, the patients were usually grateful and, and interesting to, you know, get to know beforehand. Um, but, uh, at, at the end of the day, I, my favorite days were, were not my work days. And if I had the option of, uh, a week off or a busy week at the hospital, I, I would take the week off. And so made the decision to, uh, retire from medicine a little easier. Yeah, no, it's, it makes sense. Go ahead, Kevin. We're moving closer to the end here. I don't have a whole lot of time, but um, a kind of a unique perspective from a physician end as well is we're also in the position when we retire is what to do with your medical license. And so I'm kind of curious, what are your decisions around that? And then also for those who, who again, who may not be physicians, the MOCA, your maintenance of certification, which is a huge um, issue in the physician space. And certainly in anesthesia, I find that particularly troubling. Um, just a little bit. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I'm a pain guy, so I didn't do anesthesia for a long time. And oh, the, yeah. the mocha thing really, if you don't do it, your mm. options are done. So um, yeah, I've got a mocha story. So I was in the cohort. I finished residency in 2006, was board certified in 2007. And at the seven year mark, the ABA, that's the American board of anesthesiology says, hey, you can now take your 10-year certification or recertification exam and they kind of encourage it. And they say, all right, you know, if you take it now, you still have a couple of times to retake it. If things don't go well and you have a bad day, don't pass it the first time. So, okay, all right, I'll sign up for, uh, you know, as soon as I can. I think I might've taken this, I think it was a summer or a winter option. I'm like, well, summer, I don't want to be studying. Summer's beautiful up North, but I'll, I'll do the winter one. So I, I took this $2,100 uh, exam and I, I spent a good amount of time studying and a lot of it and and even this is more uh, more true for you Kevin but I'm in a community hospital I'm not doing heads I'm not doing hearts I'm not in the ICU and so a good chunk of what I'm studying and the you know, test quest, test questions I'm preparing for are not things that I really need to know to do my community hospital based anesthesia job, but okay. I, you know, I, I studied all this for boards before I can do this. And I took the test and I did pretty well. Um, and I was very happy with my score and whatnot. And, and then within weeks of getting the result, the ABA said, Oh, by the way, that's not going to count for anything. We're switching to Mocha 2.0. And now you're going to answer 30 questions a year or 30 questions a quarter. 120 a year and you're going to pay $210 a year, even though you just paid 2100 Wait a minute. That's a bait and switch. And they obviously knew that they had all of this in place when they encouraged me to take the test and took my money and put me through all that. So that, okay. If there's any burnout <laughs> or angst in my past, <laughs> it's that stupid scenario. But um, yeah. So what have I done about all, all of that since I left? This is an interesting time to ask that question because it's been just over two years since I last um, practiced. And so from what I hear, that is the time where it can be difficult to obtain medical malpractice insurance and to be covered. Uh, and so I kind of feel like I've met the point of no return, or at least a difficult and arduous return that might require some remedial training and that sort of thing. I did maintain a medical license um, in the state of Minnesota, which I've renewed annually twice, but it expires in November. Um, I came to the point where my ACLS, PALS, BLS, those would come up for renewal. And I could have either taken a one day renewal before it expired, 
or if I were to decide to go back, take a two day, you know, new student course, essentially. And I, I kind of weighed the pros and cons there and decided, well, let's just wait and see. And I, I can get those back if I need them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the times that they were coming up, I felt more and more uh, confident that I was not going to choose to go back. And so I do plan to let that last medical license go inactive uh, this November, uh, at which point it would be that much more difficult to go back. Uh, but I, I don't have any strong desire. I don't feel like I've missed out on my calling by walking away. And uh, I don't feel like financially there would be any reason that I would feel that I, I would need the work, so to speak. So I'm going to, uh, yeah, like I said, be, uh, be done with that uh, medical license as of November, uh, which will be interesting, but I think I'm okay. I'm at peace with that. Mm. I love that question just from a sense of identity and what it is that, you know, makes you feel good about who you are. I think there's some people that, that if they just only had that and they weren't a father and, uh, you know, a spouse and, you know, have all these other things going for them, uh, that might be a harder pill to swallow. Um, yeah. And the more you identify with, uh, you know, your career as, you know, part of your ego and, and a big part of your identity, the more difficult it will be to walk away. And yeah. I've always had friends outside the hospital and I've never really led with that doctor card. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those things I'll admit, you know, if, if it gets that far <laughs> in the conversation, well, yeah, I work, work at the hospital, you know? But, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think in anesthesia too, I, I feel like maybe the, the egos aren't as strong as they are in, in some other specialties, but <laughs> I, certainly they can be, I, I guess I shouldn't paint that with such a broad brush, but in yeah. um, the OR, I feel like we're, we're as much staff as we are. Uh, I mean, we're obviously professionals, but we, we definitely are um, doing the, the grunt work. We're, we're very well-paid uh, kind of blue collar workers there yeah yeah we're lifting patients we're getting blood and spit and everything else on us and we're yeah yeah. the other side of the dyad that i won't discuss tends to be where the the ego is um more pervasive Um, could be and and again that varies but yes yeah Yeah. we don't want to we don't want to put everyone in one bucket no 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 well kevin any final thoughts before we uh head out no, uh, as usual, the interview and the discussion has generated a ton of little thinking points that I'm like, oh, there's something that we need to talk about and there's something we need to talk about. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on the, the show today, Leaf, and um, providing your perspectives as a early retiree and uh, having pulled that ripcord and, and made that transition. Well, I'm glad you uh, invited me and I uh, thank you for uh, sharing my story with your audience. And I hope they also found a, a few pearls to, uh, to take home and ponder themselves. Absolutely. Well, things for me to think about as well. And uh, thank you so much for all the great nuggets of information, Leaf. And uh, for those of you listening out there, I am Melissa Katie, the Challenge Doctor with my co-host, Dr. Kevin Kakaro, And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And if you don't know anything about The Change Physician, you can go to thechangephysician.com and join there as a physician or a physician ally. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Stay well, folks. Thank you for joining us today on the Change Physician podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.